Every year, usually on New Year's Eve, they produce highlights programs of the past year. When they make the highlights program for this year, one of the main memories, I'm sure, will be the questioning of Rupert Murdoch over the phone hacking at his newspapers. That was one of the big stories of this year. And the pie in the face made it even more memorable for most of us. But 10 years from now, probably we'll have forgotten about it. In the grand scheme of history, it really wasn't a big deal. But this morning we're going to look at another trial. But this one has not been forgotten, even 2,000 years after it happened. It hasn't been forgotten because this particular trial stands at the heart of the whole of history. You'll find a record of it in Luke chapter 22. In the Church Bible, that's page 1059. We'll pick up this morning at chapter 22, verse 66. And we'll follow this through to chapter 23, verse 25. And I'll read the whole passage. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. 
and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is God's word. In the first part of this passage, Jesus is brought before the Jewish leaders for questioning. We've known for quite a while that they want Jesus dead. So what we have here is not exactly a trial. It's an attempt to gather evidence in support of the verdict they've already reached. The council mentioned in verse 66 is apparently the Sanhedrin. Historians tell us the Sanhedrin had 71 members. So Jesus is standing in front of an intimidating group. All the more so because they've already made up their minds that he has to die. We'll find out later that the Sanhedrin was not unanimous on this. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of this council. And he will later bury Jesus in his own tomb. Luke will tell us Joseph did not consent to the decision and action of the Sanhedrin. So there must have been a few dissenting voices here. But the majority have been waiting for this opportunity for a long time. What they need is some evidence that Jesus is a political threat to Rome. Or at least something they can twist to make him look like a threat to Rome. So in verse 67 they ask, if you are the Christ, tell us. The Christ is God's anointed one, the Messiah. He's the one promised in the Old Testament. He's the one the Jews are waiting for. But the council is not asking this question because they want to accept Jesus and worship him. They're asking because they want a reason to condemn him. Jesus is well aware of that, so he says in verse 67, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. In other words, it's pointless for me to answer you. It's pointless even to try and discuss this with you. You've already made up your minds. You've decided I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is saying, telling you the truth will only get me killed. But then look what he goes on to say in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. We've noticed before that the Son of Man is the way Jesus usually refers to himself. It's a title taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel. 
Daniel saw a vision of a man who ruled with all of God's power and authority. Jesus made it clear that he was the son of man Daniel saw in his vision. And his statement here does two things. First of all, it lets the Sanhedrin know that he's not under their authority. Yes, he's about to go to his death, but on the other side of the cross, Jesus will be raised to sit at the right hand of the mighty God. That's a way of saying he shares God's authority. Jesus is the judge of the Sanhedrin, not the other way around. But this statement from Jesus also gives the Sanhedrin what they're looking for. They wanted evidence against him. And now, Jesus condemns himself by telling the truth. We've noticed several times in recent weeks that Jesus is in control all the way to the cross. He was not captured out on the Mount of Olives. He surrendered himself when he was ready. And here, he's not being tricked by clever questioning. He confesses who he is, knowing full well that it's moving him closer to death. Jesus is laying down his life. He's not having his life taken from him. And he's doing this not because he has a death wish. It's not because of some horrible depression that wants to be done with life. Jesus is laying down his life because he loves his Father and will obey his Father's will. He will lay down his life as a substitute for sinners. And so here, even though he has authority over this Jewish council, even though these men will one day stand before his judgment seat, Jesus gives them what they're looking for. He condemns himself by telling the truth. Just to make sure that they've got it right, the council asks again in verse 70, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. They're pleased. Now they can move on to the next stage of their plan. But before we follow them, it's worth thinking for a moment about what we've just seen. There's no sense in which these men were open to being persuaded by Jesus. There's no sense in which they were willing to actually weigh up his claims. Could this man possibly be the Son of God? No, their one agenda is to get rid of him. Their judgment was made before Jesus even opened his mouth. And that's often the case today too. Our society prides itself on being open-minded. But how many people come to the New Testament with a truly open mind? How many look at Jesus' life and listen to his words with an open mind? For people who claim to be open-minded, we're pretty quick to dismiss the New Testament as a fairy tale. We're pretty close to the possibility as a society that there might be a God. At least a God who would intervene in this world. Intervene by becoming one of us and dying to save us from our own mess. 
For many people today, Jesus condemns himself by telling the truth. They have decided beforehand that a God who intervenes in history is just impossible. A God who comes and lives among us is impossible. So when Jesus claims to be God intervening in history, he's automatically dismissed. Everyone loves to be thought of as open-minded. But how many really are? Even when our politicians are saying that our society is broken. Even when our journalists are saying Britain has a spiritual problem. How many are willing to consider the good news found in the New Testament? If you want to be a truly open-minded person, don't turn to the Bible looking for an excuse to rubbish it. Listen to what it says. Does it give a reasonable explanation of the mess that we're in? Does it present us with a solution that fits our mess? A man called G.K. Chesterton did that. And he found that the Bible's explanation was the only key that fit the lock of his life and the world around him. It was the only explanation that truly made sense. But we'll never see that unless we give Jesus a fair hearing. Well, we can be thankful that God didn't give up on this closed-minded world. God the Son stood before this closed-minded council, but instead of using his divine power to strike them down, he took one step closer to dying for their salvation, like a lamb to the slaughter. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Jesus is found innocent. The Jews had no authority to execute people. So they can't carry out their death sentence on Jesus. They need Pilate to find him guilty too. Pilate was the Roman administrator for the region. It was his job to preserve law and order. So he's not going to be interested if the Jews bring a religious claim like blasphemy against Jesus. They need to convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat to the peace. Or as they say in America, a threat to national security. So look at the way they put it to Pilate in verse 2. Jesus is subverting our nation. He's stirring the people up, Pilate. And he's against the Roman tax. And you need those taxes, Pilate. It's your job to deliver them to Rome. And he claims to be a king, Pilate. That makes him a threat to Caesar. Now, their charges here are a mixture of truth and lies. Yes, Jesus does claim to be a king, but not the kind of political king who's a threat to Pilate or to Rome. And Jesus most definitely did not oppose paying taxes to Caesar. Caesar. 
In chapter 20, he answered the tax question by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The Jews have plenty of evidence that Jesus claims to be God's son. But they have no case against him as a political revolutionary. And Pilate soon realizes that. In verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Notice what's happened here. Pilate has found Jesus to be politically harmless. The Jews have no case against him. And yet Pilate does not release him. He passes the buck on to Herod. Why? Because the Jewish leaders are turning up the pressure on Pilate. And verse 4 has told us that now daylight has come, a crowd is gathering. The situation is getting a bit hot for Pilate. He's supposed to see that justice is done. But the Jews don't want justice done. Someone has said that here, politics and public relations win over justice. When Jesus does die, it will be as the innocent one. The sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament had to be spotless and without defect. So the ultimate sacrificial lamb had to be free from any sin. Only a perfect sacrifice would do. And Jesus qualifies. He's innocent. Herod is also a representative of Rome. He's supposedly the king of the Jews. But he was put in place by Rome. Herod's palace in Jerusalem was a ten-minute walk from Pilate's. And Pilate is only too happy to send Jesus there. Maybe he can share a bit of the heat with Herod. Or maybe Herod will come up with a way out of this. Look again at verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. Herod sees Jesus as a circus act. He's a curiosity, a bit of a celebrity guest. Herod wants to see him perform. And some people today take the same approach as Herod. Jesus is of interest to them because he might do some magic tricks. He might heal them. He might sort out their financial troubles. He might give them some special ability that they can impress others with. Very often people who look at Jesus this way aren't too interested in who he really is. They're not too interested in worshipping him as God or obeying him as Lord. They want to see Jesus perform for them. And if you or I approach Jesus that way, we're likely to be as disappointed as Herod was. Verse 9, he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. When Herod and his soldiers, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Jesus refuses to perform. He has nothing to say to Herod. There are plenty of people in England who would say they've given Jesus a try. Maybe they've dipped into the Bible or gone to church, asked for prayer. Maybe they've even been baptized. But today, they're not interested in Jesus. As far as they're concerned, Jesus let them down. He didn't take all their problems away. He didn't make their marriage get better. He didn't heal their friend. He didn't deliver the job or the pay packet or the relationship that they desperately wanted. Jesus didn't perform for them. He didn't live up to their expectations as the genie in the bottle. Look again how Herod responds in verse 11. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Very often when someone becomes a mocker or a ridiculer of Jesus, it's because their hopes of Jesus have not been fulfilled. But here's the thing. When Jesus does not live up to our expectations, the fault lies with our expectations, not with Jesus. God the Father is trustworthy. He always keeps his promises. His son Jesus is exactly the same. But he has not promised to be our very own personal miracle worker. He has not promised to deliver health, wealth, and happiness on a plate. He does promise forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, eternity in God's presence. He does promise, as Tony reminded us last week, a daily supply of the grace and peace that we need for each day. The things God has actually promised us are more lasting and valuable than the flashy fireworks we might want from him. We might find that freedom from pain and inconvenience now is more attractive to us than the joy of salvation, than the privilege of coming to God as our Father. But Jesus has not promised to come and take away our troubles like the bin man takes away our rubbish. He has promised to transform us into his likeness. But that will not be an overnight process. It may well be a painful process. The Jesus foretold in the Old Testament and presented in the New Testament is not a magician. He's not an entertainer. He's not like the man from the RAC or the AA who comes to tow away our problems. The Jesus of Scripture is the king of the universe. The king who came and died on earth as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Bible calls us not to bring him our to-do list. No, the Bible calls us to bow before him in worship. To surrender to him. To say, not my will, but yours be done. 
The irony here in Herod's courtyard is that the man being mocked as a king is the king. But Herod doesn't see it. If Herod had been willing to see Jesus for who he is, he would have found something much greater than the traveling magician he was looking for. He would have found the way, the truth, and the life. So when we present Jesus to other people, let's make sure we're not presenting a Jesus who looks very much like the RAC man. Let's make sure we're presenting Jesus as he really is. Not the one who comes to tow away all our problems, but the man who gives us true life and love and security. Things that can never be taken away from us. Let's resist the temptation to present Jesus as a magic genie in a bottle. And if you're looking into Jesus... Please be clear about what he has promised to do for you and what he has not promised. If you're willing to come to Jesus on his terms, you'll find more than you could ask or imagine. You'll find life in all its fullness. Pilate's problem has not gone away. Jesus is back again on his doorstep. And so are the Jewish leaders. And now we're told the people have come out into the streets. Look at verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Pilate is caught here between Jesus' innocence and the demands of the crowd. We might wonder how Barabbas gets involved in the discussion here. The answer is given by Matthew in his gospel. He tells us it was the governor's custom at the feast, that's the Passover feast, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. So this was an annual gesture of goodwill from the Romans to the Jews. And obviously Pilate seizes on it as his way out of this situation. He knows Jesus is both innocent and harmless. So he suggests that Jesus be the prisoner who gets released this year. This way, he thinks the Jewish leaders won't have to lose face. They can have the satisfaction of seeing Jesus punished. And Pilate can get out of this sticky situation he's in. But Pilate has just made things worse for himself. Not only do the people reject Jesus being released, they want Barabbas instead. And he is a threat to national security. Verse 19 says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Having tried to convince Pilate that Jesus was trouble, 
The people now want a genuine troublemaker released. And now they make it very clear what they want for Jesus. Verse 21. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Crucifixion was the harshest form of capital punishment in the ancient world. Josephus, who had seen crucifixions, called it the worst of deaths. Cicero called it a cruel and disgusting penalty. So Pilate tries again to convince the crowd about his alternative plan for Jesus. Verse 22, for the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and and surrendered Jesus to their will. Pilate is not aggressive toward Jesus like the crowd is. He doesn't ridicule Jesus like Herod does. But in the end, Pilate has just as much a part in Jesus' death. Under pressure, Pilate rejects Jesus too. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And we see that here with Pilate. Earlier we skipped over a detail in verse 12. Luke tells us that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate might want to stay above the hatred and the ridicule that's being poured out on Jesus. But in the end, he sides with Jesus' enemies. Herod, the mocker of Jesus, becomes Pilate's friend. And Pilate sees that it's the will of the angry crowd that's done. Someone has said, indifference to Jesus is just as dangerous as opposition to him. So please don't think that your indifference to Jesus puts you in a better position than those who actively oppose him or those who ridicule him. The majority of people are not haters or mockers of Jesus. They're just indifferent to him. But in the end, they are not with Jesus. They will not throw in their lot with Jesus. Some people who are indifferent to Jesus can still enjoy church. Maybe they find some of the singing uplifting. The social time is good. Maybe sometimes an aspect of the talk is heartwarming to them or inspiring to them. Some of you here this morning are in that category. You have a certain enthusiasm for church, but you're holding back from throwing in your lot with Jesus. Yet the Bible is clear. Today, the risen Jesus is seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He's the judge who will come again. And if you're not with him, you're against him. 
Indifference to Jesus is just as dangerous as opposition to him. Pilate has a lot to teach us. But for all that Pilate has to teach us, this final scene is not about Pilate. Jesus has not spoken a word here. But he is at the center of the storm. And at the end of the scene, Jesus is led away to be crucified. And Barabbas walks free. The innocent one is sentenced to death. And the guilty one goes free. Historians tell us crucifixion was the method of death death used for rebels. Barabbas is the true rebel here. He's the guilty one. But Jesus, the one proven innocent, is going to die a rebel's death. When you and I look at Barabbas, we ought to see ourselves. The Bible says every single one of us is guilty of rebellion against God. There is no greater crime than that. All of us deserve the worst punishment. I am Barabbas. So are you. But Jesus stepped forward to take the punishment for us. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born... God announced through Isaiah that he would send one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace would be upon him. Luke has told us that Herod plied Jesus with many questions. What a chance that was for Jesus to justify himself. To argue his case. But, Luke says, Jesus gave him no answer. Isaiah's prophecy says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is submitting himself to be slaughtered. But this is not a meaningless slaughter. He is going to be slaughtered for our salvation. That's why his death has such significance. That's why we continue to remember his death. That's why this table is here with bread and wine. It's here to help us remember And so before we move on to take the bread and wine, we're going to affirm together the meaning and the significance of Jesus' death. We're going to do that as we sing, My Lord, what love is this? <laughs>